Well, good morning, ladies. It's good to be with you today, and thank you for joining us on the podcast, too. So today is December 1st, and I love December. Um, I think that the Christmas season has officially begun. Actually, I think it has officially begun after American Thanksgiving, but that's a different debate. Um, Maybe you've already begun shopping or decorating or planning for parties. Maybe you still have a lot to do, or maybe you haven't even started. or perhaps Christmas is something where you just want to like bury your head in the sand and let it pass without a lot of drama. I know that I've had some really dark and lonely Christmases in my life and times where I didn't feel like celebrating anything. And I'm guessing there are others here who have felt the same way and maybe that's your year this year. Um, we all feel differently about Christmas, but regardless of what we feel about Christmas, the truth is that there is still much to celebrate. Because Jesus' birth changed everything. It matters because we're sinful, and we need a remedy so that we can be with our Holy Creator, which is what we're going to talk about today. Isaiah 8 states the human plight this way. It says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But then, in Isaiah, just a little bit later, there's a famous Christian verse, or Christmas verse, that declares, For unto us a child is born. And it kind of brings a collective sigh to all of us, because we know that help for our sinful state has come. So Jesus' birth is praiseworthy, and it's glorious, and it's deserving of worship, because it's the beginning of Jesus' journey towards the cross. And here we are in Matthew 26, and it's um, right now Jesus is just days away from the cross in the story. And this baby that Isaiah talked about, um, in Isaiah 53, this baby would grow up and be despised, rejected, crushed, all so he could bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, all to make peace between man and God. So we see that Jesus' death changed everything. It matters because I'm weak and sinful, and you're weak and sinful, and we can do nothing by our own good efforts to satisfy the wrath of God. So a perfect sacrifice was needed to take the punishment for our sin. So as we, we begin to celebrate the birth of Christ while simultaneously studying the death of Christ, I hope that our hearts can grasp the significance of both of the events. And my hope is that today we rightly see our need for Jesus while we also see him as the king. So the book shifts from previous chapters. There's lots of teaching that we just went through. And now it shifts to this emotional narrative where um, Jesus is just days before his death. He's finished his final sermon, and now he turns toward completing his mission that he came to fulfill. And this chapter is really great. It's full of lots of drama, lots of contrasts. We see things like fellowship and betrayal contrasted, sacrifice, desertion, faithfulness and abandonment, innocence, accusation, submission, strength, weakness and power, and swordplay and roosters. This chapter has everything in it. It explores the character of people as they find themselves face-to-face with Jesus. Mary, with her public outpouring of love. Judas, with his private decision to betray. 
Peter with his determination to stand by Jesus' side and then just a few hours later failing miserably. And most importantly, we see Christ as the obedient, suffering servant. He's the shining light that the darkness of the world needs. So I'm going to take the time to read this chapter in its entirety. It's really long. It's 75 verses. I have my reading glasses just so I can read it. I feel old. Um, but I wanted to read it all in its entirety because it's really a rich story, and Matthew specifically wrote it in a certain way that, and that lends itself to being, um, I think, read out loud in the way it is. So join, just follow along, and sit back and relax while I read. So chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same. <clears throat> then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I, that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as, a as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have, heard, you have now heard his testimony. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, 
you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So what began with a tight group of 12 men learning from their teacher ends with all of them scattered and one of them weeping. So what happened in these few short days? Well, chapter 26 opens with Jesus just telling us the plot of the chapter. He foretells that the Passover will come and then the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then, very quickly, the opposition comes on the scene. The religious leaders are plotting to capture and kill Jesus. So this is the fourth and final time Jesus is predicting his death and he states finally when it's going to happen, just days away. The time is finally at hand. And maybe you're like me and you've wondered, why weren't the disciples more prepared for Jesus' death? They should have known it was going to happen because he tells them again and again. And do you know what else was predicted? The resurrection. So the ending of the story was already told. All the coming sorrow would end in rejoicing. Jesus told them this. But the men, as we will soon see, did not believe Jesus' words. But Matthew tells us of a woman that does. We see in verses 6 and 7 that a woman listened to Jesus, what Jesus taught. And she, because of it, she made an expensive purchase, and she broke open this costly gift, and she poured it onto his head, all to prepare him for his death that was to come. We know from other Gospels that this woman is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And this is the same woman who had just recently stood by her brother's tomb, crying. And Jesus stood beside her, crying, because of Mary's sorrow. And then he raised Jesus, or Lazarus from the dead. So Mary knew what death and burial was like, and she knew better than most what resurrection was like. And she wanted to share in the suffering that Jesus was about to endure. So her sacrifice was significant in terms of cost. It was worth about one year's wage. And it's the cost that was not lost on the disciples because they strongly oppose it. Why this waste, they, they ask? It could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. And we know from other accounts that those words were spoken by Judas. Yet Jesus calls it a beautiful act. He says, she, or because she was the only one in the room who seemed to understand that the king was days away from dying. And amazingly, it was declared by Jesus that this quiet, worshipful act would actually bring her worldwide renown. So believing who Jesus uh, says he is and pouring out ourselves in quiet, worshipful acts, that's a great calling, and may it be true of us too. But speaking of renown, the story of Mary's beautiful act is abruptly turns, it abruptly turns into the story of Judas' betrayal. In perhaps the perfect foil to Mary's sacrifice, Judas shows us what happens when knowledge is not met with faith. Judas, who saw Jesus heal the lame, Jesus miraculously multiply fish and bread, 
Jesus cast out demons, Jesus calm a raging storm, Jesus make Lazarus alive. This Judas did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Note in verse 15 that Judas offered to deliver Jesus over to them. He wasn't sought after, he didn't need convincing, he offered. Note also the reward. 30 pieces of silver was about four months wages, which seems pretty petty compared to Mary's costly gift. The contrast between Mary and Judas is not accidental. Other gospel writers put the event with Mary in a different place because it actually happened before Jesus came into Jerusalem. But because each gospel writer is emphasizing a different aspect of who Jesus is, we know that their selection and placement of details is important. So Mary's fame would be one of belief that lead to, led to devotion. She's a reminder to all of us what being a follower of Jesus is like. Judas's renown would be one of unbelief that leads to betrayal. And we don't have a window into Judas's thoughts to know why he decided to betray Jesus. But we read this and we should heed the warning. As we consider the weakness and sin sinfulness of man, we really must remember that it is possible to intimately know Jesus and yet not actually know him. So Matthew now moves to highlight the fellowship of all of those who are close to Jesus. We see them sharing a meal together, reclining close together, raising their voices in song together. Surely this must be what it means to follow Jesus. But then Matthew contrasts such fellowship with Jesus' sobering predictions. One of you will betray me. All of you will fall away. And sadly, we see all the men do just that. So in verse, four, verse 17, the Passover is set to begin, and it was prepared in a borrowed room at the word of Jesus. Jesus' steady control of all that was going on around him is on display here, from the preparations of the meal to the conversations at mealtime. And we see that this quiet resolve as he endures the coming trials, um, that's really what, what's on focus here. Um, he has complete control over all that's going on. So now he sits down with the 12 closest men in all of the world to him. Just as he knew this room would be lent to him, he also knew all of their hearts. So two notable things that happen together happen as they gather together. One is that the disciples are revealed to be faithless. And two, Jesus' plan to die remains steadfast. So in verse 21, Jesus starts the conversation off with a zinger. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And of course, the disciples are all filled with confusion and sorrow, and they beg to know who it'll be. Because for 11 of them, this would have been alarming and confusing. And for one of them, Judas, it would have been, I think, really frightening that Jesus knew what he was going to do. And then if you skip ahead to verse 30, Jesus speaks of another kind of sorrow, desertion. And just as predicted in Zechariah 13, 7, all of the disciples would abandon him. As the shepherd is attacked, the sheep would run. Jesus would be left alone to suffer. But Peter's adamant that it will never be true of him. Jesus pronounces otherwise. That very night, Peter, before the sun rises and the rooster signals daybreak, you will deny me. We've got to love the determination of Peter and the disciples. They want to not abandon Jesus. After all, no one wants to believe they're capable of sin. So on the one hand, you have Jesus talking about his betrayal, and on the other hand, his abandonment. And it's as if this fellowship is kind of hanging by a thread. But in the middle of this dysfunctional fellowship sandwich, as I call it, 
lies something altogether different. We see a new beginning. So look with me at verse 26. I'm going to read it. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. Sorry. The Passover meal was a yearly means for people to remember God's faithfulness of his deliverance of them from Egypt. I'm sure you guys have heard a lot about it. But just as a way of reminder, in the book of Exodus, God commanded all the people to take a lamb, slaughter it, dip a hyssop branch in its blood, and wipe it on the, um, the doorposts of their houses. And then the angel of death came through Egypt and killed all the firstborn of those who didn't have this saving blood on their doorsteps. So the angel passed over them. So the terror of that deadly night was the turning point in their rescue from Egypt. And that's what thousands of years later everyone was celebrating. It was an elaborate Passover meal. But here Jesus is, we see something, we see him beginning something new, a new covenant. He's pointing to something greater, something to come. And it's something that will cause his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out. What happens in this new covenant? Something the old covenant couldn't do. It's the forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice, the blood, would keep the angel of death away for eternity. And the people of God could finally find their resting place with God. Imagine the scene. Jesus is holding bread in his hands and tearing pieces off and handing it and putting it in the hands of the same men who would soon abandon him. Take, eat, he says. Drink of it. This is my body. This is my blood. So we see that the heart of Jesus is to save and to forgive. So even with betrayal and abandonment coming, he could declare his mission was as necessary as ever, to die so as to bring the forgiveness of sin. So in the midst of our own sin and our own weaknesses, we must see Christ who faithfully poured himself out for the forgiveness of sins. Now comes the quiet before the storm, in verse 36, Jesus and his disciples are in Gethsemane, early in the morning on the day of his death. He leaves most of the disciples to sit and wait, but he brings Peter and James and John to come with him. It's an intimate group. It's Jesus' closest friends. And Jesus is troubled and sorrowful, it says. We get a glimpse into his raw emotions. Just out, he's just hours away from his death. Keeping his friends close, he, he asks them to watch, to remain near. His sorrow feels almost like death, he says. But as we read, his friends cannot watch and wait with him. Their human condition is a problem. They're weak, their bodies are weak, they're tired, they're full of temptation and sin, and it keeps them from staying awake. Jesus was asking them to share in his sufferings to help bear a tiny fraction of his sorrow, but they couldn't. But soon enough, Jesus would ascend into heaven, and the Holy Spirit would descend onto them, and they would begin to understand what it means to suffer for Jesus. For now, Jesus suffered alone. He poured out his pain in words that I think are the climax of this chapter. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So the sinless Son of God would drink from the filthiest, most vile, most horrific cup imaginable, 
We actually can't even begin to imagine how horrible it would be. And the cup is the wrath of God. The hymn, Holy, 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 is my, one of my favorite hymns. The adoration, the perfection, the power of God is all bursting forth in song, celebrating that God is set apart from us. He's different than us, and he's holy. This all means that he deserves praise from our lips, but it also means that we have no business drawing near to him. To sinful beings, his holiness is actually terrifying. A holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. So Jesus came to do something about that. Jesus' mission was to pay this debt and to be the spotless sacrificial lamb. And the worst part of this cup, this coming suffering, was not that he would be deserted by his friends or in physical agony. It was that he would be separated from his father. But here in the garden, the heaviness of sorrow that fills near death is not what wins out. Jesus' prayer, not my will but thine, is an amazing act of submission and obedience to the Father. He knew he would feel physical pain. He knew he would feel the agonizing weight of sin and death. But he chose to do it anyway, saying, not my will but thine. Thank God that Jesus would soon drink the cup of wrath himself on our behalf. We who are in Christ today, we will not taste one little drop of that eternal punishment that Jesus drank of. So as Jesus' prayers are echoing in our ears, we suddenly find him surrounded by this huge crowd. They're ready for violence with clubs and swords, and leading the way is Judas, who greets him with a sterile rabbi and a duplicitous kiss. And finally, as predicted by Jesus over and over, he's arrested and he's deserted, but not before Peter, in a wild move, takes his sword and cuts off the ear of Caiaphas' servant. Matthew doesn't state it's Peter, but John rats him out in his gospel. <laughs> so Jesus, with the cross as his focal point, he doesn't want to solve the problem of his, of his arrest through violence. He has an army of angels at his disposal. He made lightning bolts and volcanoes. He commands heavenly beings. All he needs to do is ask his father. He doesn't need Peter's help. And the shocking thing is that his arrest isn't actually a problem to him. It's a means to an end. It is what scripture predicted, as Jesus points out and Matthew points out again and again. He must get arrested. He must face what's coming. But Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer. He wanted a king that would reign without having to die. He wanted to follow Jesus, but not passively to the cross. It's hard to trust a plan you don't understand, which is why I hate unplanned Saturdays and surprises. I want to know the details so I can follow a plan that I fully comprehend and I fully agree with. But this is not how submission and leadership works. Peter wanted to follow Jesus by his rules and in his way, but Jesus knew that pain and suffering must happen. Put your sword back into its place is a timely reminder for all of us who want to do things by our own schedule and our own way. If God could wisely orchestrate the events leading up to the salvation of sinners, can he not wisely orchestrate the things he calls us to do when we, that we find hard to follow? Especially things that bring us suffering or persecution because of the gospel. We cannot be his followers unless we share in his sufferings. The chapter ends with two somber scenes of two different kinds of hearings. The first with Jesus and the second with Peter. Jesus is put on trial by the Sanhedrin, some of your Bible says, the religious leaders, 
and Peter is interrogated in a trial all of his own making. First, we see that Jesus stands alone before the high priest. Note in verse 59 that Jesus' trial was not a fair trial from the outset. Unlike our modern judicial approach, which people in which people are innocent until proven guilty, Jesus was guilty from the get-go. Their case rested on conjuring up false evidence against him. They had no facts, no actual reason to kill him. But they were persistent, and they finally found two witnesses, which was what was needed under Levitical law, so that they could legally accuse him of a crime. And the witnesses bring forth Jesus' statement from before about tearing down the temple and raising it up again in three days, because desecrating the temple would have been a criminal offense. Yet these witnesses have twisted Jesus' words, because we know he was talking about the body, his body, the temple. It would be torn down and it would be resurrected three days later. Caiaphas wants an answer, but Jesus doesn't give any. As Isaiah puts it, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. In what sounds like exasperation, Caiaphas demands, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas is actually putting it on Jesus to swear by God, whether or not he is the Christ. You might say that Jesus was backed into a corner here, but Jesus, in keeping with the calm resolve we've seen in this whole chapter, he answers in verse 64, without swearing by God that Caiaphas has already done the answering. And even more so, he says, regardless of whether they want it or not, the Son of Man will come in the clouds, sitting in the utmost seat of power. It will happen. It is happening, Jesus is saying. But the Messiah does not look like what the Jewish leaders thought he looked like. They can't, they can't handle that. So an indignation seizes them, and they claim that it must be blasphemy. The scene ends with beating and mockery, with the pronouncement of a verdict that had already been predetermined, that Jesus deserves death. Peter, who has been looming outside in the courtyard, now faces a different kind of trial. Three separate accusations come at him. You also were with Jesus the Galilean, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Certainly you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. But Peter responds with increasing agitation. Listen as I read his responses. You hear the panic and the desperation. He denied it, saying, I do not know what you mean. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And the chapter ends when the day breaks on Friday morning and the crow, or the rooster crows, and we see that Peter's heartbroken. He remembers Jesus' prediction and he leaves weeping. And interestingly, Peter is not mentioned in the book of Matthew again. But look with me back at Matthew 16, 15. These are Jesus' words. In uh, 16, 15, it says, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living, living God. And down to 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this hot-tempered deserter would become a rock that the church is built on. How is it even possible, except for the grace and forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death? This impulsive, erratic failure of a disciple would actually become a bold and steady 
uh, follower of Jesus. And he would one day write in 1 Peter chapter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So this should bring hope to us as failed, failed followers like, like Peter. We need to pray that the testing of our faith will reveal sin that will one day lead to a greater, more solid faith. But the testing and restoration of Peter's faith is not what's most important in this chapter. We must marvel at the kindness and the sovereignty of God, a God who changed, will change Peter. And we must see the power of Jesus, who was, and he was able to enlist soldiers, uh, angelic soldiers, but he didn't. And he was able to strike Caiaphas down with one word, but instead he was silent. And he faced his coming death alone, knowing that this is what must be done to bring salvation. This is what we should marvel at. So in the midst of our sin and our weakness, we must see Christ who faithfully poured out himself for our sins. And we must see that trusting in Christ's kingship instead of our own ability to follow is the key to being a faithful follower of Jesus. So let us rightly see our need for Jesus and let us rightly see his place as king today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you show us who Jesus is and that he is faithful when we are faithless and that he is steady when we are unsteady and that he brought salvation when we could do nothing to save ourselves. In the name we pray. Amen.